I have a quick question um, before we begin. Um, are each of you from small towns? And if so, uh, how would you rate that small town out of five stars? I'm from yeah. Dartmouth, so not exactly a small town. And, and the towns in my book are all fictional, sort of. Um, but I would, I would rate them like two out of five. <laughs> and that's kind of the point. They're not exactly glamorous. That's what I wanted to hear, Colin. Thank you. I'm from a small town and I would rate it a negative one star. Do not travel to the fictional towns in my book. My name is Morgan Murray. Welcome to the Atlantic Book Awards Festival. I wrote my first book last year, so I'm the old surly veteran on this uh, panel, so I get to host this year's first book award, um, the Margaret and John Savage first book award for fiction nominees. Uh, and I'll introduce them to you in a, you to them in a sec. It's 10 a.m. I'm going to stumble all over here. Um, but it's also exciting because each of their books kind of shares a thematic element in that there's um, some mysterious crime happening in small towns. And so we're going to get into that this morning. All right, let's get into it here. Uh, this year, the Margaret and John Savage First Book Award for Fiction is Eyeball Deep in Talent uh, and coincidentally mystery, like I said, in crime. Um, and so we're going to talk all about the, the, the murder and the mayhem and the shocking secrets and the questionable police and all the craziness that happens in these three brilliant books. Um, so just quickly to introduce, Colin Sweets Arsenault is nominated for Short Mercy. To, to start off, we're going to hear a little bit about the book. We're going to hear a little bit of the book. Colin, we've just met, but I hate you already. I'm sorry, um, because you're the most productive human I've ever met. You have a radio show every day. You have two podcasts. Yeah. You have a soon-to-be wife, Becky. I got questions about that. <laughs> uh, and two cats. Mm -hmm. And somehow you managed to find time to write a novel, not just any novel, but an award-winning novel, um, <laughs> Short Mercy, which is nominated for uh, this first book award, but is also the Robbie Robertson Dartmouth Book Award for Fiction. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And all that you do. I'm green with envy. Um, if you have time, could you tell us about your book and uh, <laughs> read us a little bit of it? For what it's worth, having cats really does not add to my workload. They just sit around and, in fact, they bring me down to a, to a, a, a level of comfort, I think. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it's interesting, I think, that this panel is so focused on, on mystery. It's interesting for me anyway, because it sounds like a cliche, but I had no intention of writing a mystery book. And I didn't necessarily think it was a mystery book. I think it could be assigned to a lot of different genres. It's a buddy adventure. Um, it's a coming of age story. I think I set out to write a Western. The first thing I, I conceived in 2018 when I started writing was that uh, I really wanted to create uh, a story around a mythic outlaw, like in a, in a Western kind of sense. What if some mysterious uh, black hat rode into town and robbed a bunch of banks and now 30, 40 years later, Nobody is even really sure if that's what happened, but we love to assign blame to that guy anytime something goes wrong. And so uh, the story centers around uh, Jim Short, who is a lonely, kind of hermited, stubborn, uh, used book salesman in the fictional town of Heathering, Nova Scotia, which is 
kind of a dead town. It's not a real town, but I think it would be familiar to a lot of people. It's not one of these uh, beautiful maritime small towns with like a canal running through it and expensive Airbnbs. It's um, it's kind of dead. And in part because of Jim Short's bookstore, he won't move in spite of uh, developers insistence that he sell the store and move uptown so that they can build a condo. Um, and so everybody around town kind of uh, resents Jim. And then one night, his bookstore is robbed. Very strange to rob a bookstore and not like a gas station or a bank or a liquor store or something. And so right there, the story doesn't totally add up. But as Jim is trying to uh, connect the dots, his only way into the mind of a criminal is to seek out help from the local teenage ne'er-do-well Mackenzie, who robs convenience stores of cigarettes and Pepsi products. And so um, they team up and they go on a little road trip uh, in search of redemption. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to read from the beginning of the book because I just told you what happens in the beginning. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read uh, an abridged version of chapter eight, which is where we meet uh, Mackenzie. On paper, Mackenzie White dropped out of Heathering Secondary on her 16th birthday. But in reality, it was sooner than that. The school had a small student body, and so her departure might have seemed considerable, but things didn't feel especially different, as her presence had only been an occasional grace for a number of semesters anyway. In lieu of classes, most days, she just drove. Her car was a 1976 Buick Skylark in midnight blue, though Mackenzie argued it was black for one simple reason. She sincerely believed it was one of the vehicles involved in the great Cape Breton bank heist of 1978. And she bragged about it to anyone who would listen. Hey, kid, she'd bait lollipop-toting youngsters. You ever seen a real-life getaway car? And the child's mother would take his hand and rush him along, sometimes uttering, pay no attention, Dylan, or some equivalent. This spoke well to Mackenzie's role in the community. She was never anyone's main priority. The police and teachers had all but lost interest, as had her mother entirely. By the time Mackenzie was 17, she depended on no one. The only person who had never lost patience with her was her grandfather, Jeffrey White, the old mechanic from the woods off exit six. He gave Mackenzie her meals, her last safe sleeping place, and eventually her car, but only as his last will after dying from lung cancer shortly after her birthday. He had given his granddaughter everything she ever valued, not the least of which was a wealth of tales about his wild days running scams and arranging shady deals. He had the stories down to the finest details, and Mackenzie believed every word. When he died, the paper ran a lean obituary recalling his solitary work in an auto shop and his quiet retirement. They wrote that he was survived by his son Carl, who nobody in Heathering, including Jeffrey, had seen in a decade, his daughter-in-law Lindy, who was known to have not gotten along with him, and his beloved granddaughter Mackenzie, who cried when she found she'd been listed last and hadn't cried since. Instead, she drove. She knew the highways by the shapes of the trees and the bright orange markings on the roadside gravel. She knew the potholes, the line fades, the rockiest ditches. She rarely stopped in other towns and only ever to visit the can or swipe jerky or a Snickers. She never went as far as the city, but spent the afternoons burning gas on the full tree-lined loop. She knew the best times to steal from self-service pumps at every major truck stop, and she only drove fast. Every town has a Mackenzie White, a rule-rejecting, ambition-lacking kid who's lost in the world 
as a result of having been given no map to start with, an ugliness to those who had it easier and a burden to those who could help. Every Mackenzie White wears invisible armor over their peach soft skin. Everyone's spirit is critically fragile, but scarcely nourished for the belief it's broken already. Every town has at least one, but most have more. And in those towns, at least they have each other. Heathering's Mackenzie White was truly alone. Dang, that um, I'm hooked. I'm ready. I'm intrigued. Um, we have a question from the chat uh, for Colin. Um, someone named Becky is asking, what does soon to be wife mean in your bio? <laughs> uh, actually, it says on the back of the book that she is my wife because I've been trying to marry her for like three and a half years, but there's this pandemic thing. And so I figured when the book came out, I'll definitely be married by then. But then we had to pick another another date. So she is my oh, soon to be wife for another six and a half days. Oh, congratulations. Wow. Thank you. You have a busy week coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Typical Colin. I know. At once. I know. What's wrong with him? <laughs> That's amazing. So um, <clears throat> uh, there's Sarah Butland, you're my hero there's questions rolling in in the chat um so yeah for the next half hour we're gonna chat we're gonna ask questions i've got some in my pocket in case i need them but they're really bad questions you guys so ask better ones in the chat and i'll make sure they get to the authors um <clears throat> jump in with comments or thoughts if you want um and yeah we're just gonna chat books and sarah has the first uh real question she says congratulations to colin and becky absolutely um, Alexandra spoke about Nancy Drew inspiring her call, her writing, uh, Colin and CS, what inspired yours and Colin, why did you pick Western? So we'll start with Colin. Yeah, I, I really, I didn't have genre in mind, um, not mystery or Western or otherwise, but I think I wanted to, to write a story about, uh, a mythic outlaw and that seemed to align with the Western genre. And then as I got writing the book, becomes nothing of the sort. First of all, it takes place in the East and in modern day. Um, and so it has notes of that, but it becomes something on its own entirely. It has crime in it. So I guess you could call it crime fiction. It has mystery in it. So you could call it mystery fiction, but I, I didn't necessarily choose uh, a genre. Is that the question? Or did you ask me what inspired me to write? Both. Oh. <laughs> uh, Oh, goodness. I don't know. Other good books? I'm sorry. <laughs> What's an example of a good book that you well, really admire? Um, I, I, I try never to miss an opportunity to say publicly that my favorite book ever is Holes, which I realize is a kid's book, but I think is a masterpiece. I think it's as sophisticated as like as, as anything written for adults. I think formatically it's kind of like that because Short Mercy is a, um, it's a brief family saga. So every time we catch up with our main characters, we also devote a chapter to talking about their parents and grandparents and how there may be some overlap. And then, you know, there's some some slight mysticism happening as well. Um, so I think there's like a, a formatic relationship to that book. Um, Colin, why did you pick to uh, make up a town instead of use a real place? Uh, the easiest answer is... Um, I didn't have to use a real place. I, I knew early on that I probably wasn't going to be very flattering towards what other, whatever small towns we were <laughs> set in. And so I, I've spent like a little bit of time in, in Kentville, Nova Scotia, uh, a little bit of time in New Glasgow. And I recognize that there's a lot of uh, town pride in those, in those communities. And I have no 
no beef with those towns either. I don't want to write a book insulting how they're they're not exactly my pace, um, which isn't necessarily the case, by the way. And so I, I fictionalized a town, which, um, as I said, it's 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 not real, but in a truer sense, it is pretty real. Uh, you know, if you if you set your story in essentially Springfield, which is not real, but it's familiar to everyone. Uh, it's going to be all the more relatable. And so I guess the, the easy answer is it just it gave me more options. I could do whatever I wanted in Heathering. As a fellow first-time novelist um, slash grizzled veteran of the writing trade, a whole year ahead of you, um, when was it, if it's happened yet, when was it, what was that moment where you began to feel like, wow, I'm actually a writer? I, I guess my experience was a little bit different, if only because I had mythologized the editing process for so long, not knowing what to expect. And you hear ugh, a lot of writers love to complain about how hard it is to be a writer, which it is, but it, there, it, I don't think you need to be a martyr about it either. Uh, <laughs> these like horror stories about John Steinbeck would go with a go to meet with his editor and he'd leave in tears. I think that's uh, it wasn't that experience for me at all. I had this idea that they were going to uh, read through my book and say, great job, let's publish it. Also start again, it's awful. And that wasn't my experience. I, I found it to be uh, pretty gratifying. And so um, I, uh, I really enjoyed the editing experience. As to when I felt like a writer, yeah, there's probably a lot of checkpoints along the way. I think I first like wrote something creatively when I was nine and decided it was fun and, and kept on doing that. Um, but I've also always kind of felt a little bit like a fraud. I've never really had peers who were writers in the same sense. I have friends who are artistic and I'll, I'll share my creativity with them and they'll be very supportive. Um, but because I didn't necessarily belong to an active writer's community, I didn't necessarily feel like I'd earned the title of being a writer. And so it's like I gate kept it for myself. And even now there's like a book in stores. And people will say, well, you're a writer now. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we'll see. <laughs> so maybe I'm, maybe I'm underconfident about it, but I think I have to get back to you on that. Well, I've got news for you. You're a writer. <laughs> so LA Dove in the chat, uh, liked your reading so much. They really want to know when they can see and hear from you next. So do any of you have any plans um, to go to any writers festivals or any other events coming up in the next foreseeable future? Colin? Uh, I'm too busy. I have two cats. <laughs> fair, fair enough. No, I mean, there's the there's the festival events coming up in the next week, but uh, it's kind of been a slow roll for me just because it's a first time experience. Doing this here now is the first time I've, any, I've done anything like this, um, but I would certainly be open to doing readings or, or interacting with, with readers or other writers, especially now that things are starting to feel a little safer publicly, that would be wonderful. Great. You heard it here, folks. Colin's available for bookings. <laughs> what has been like the biggest surprise for you? Because I think you've all sort of alluded to the fact that you've been mulling around books in your head for a long time. And um, for me personally, that first novel took at least 12 years to write. Um, in the time it took to live it, mull it, write it. Um, and, and like uh, Colin said, I sort of mythologized the whole process in my head and then I actually did it and it's not as precious as you imagined it at all. But what are some of the big surprises about either writing the book, 
uh, going through the editorial process and publishing it, and then this promotion part of it, which is weird, and you don't really think of it until it's time to do it. Um, Colin, what's been the biggest surprise through all of this? Uh, I find it very uh, moving when somebody commits the time. When a friend comes to me, who I don't even like expect it from, and they say, I, you know, I committed the six hours necessary to reading your book. It makes me want to cry. It's wonderful. There was this uh, barbecue that I had with my friends uh, about a month after the book came out. Gave them all enough time to have read it. And something I hadn't realized, <laughs> um, I, something I hadn't realized was that there's this like kind of D-list character in the book who's just there uh, to move the plot along at one point. He's like a, a bozo teenager who works at a gas station. And I, I named him Kyle and I have a friend named Kyle and it, all my friends immediately picked up on that. I didn't do it on purpose. It wasn't like ribbing my friend Kyle, but we had like a live reading and Kyle was there and his face was as red as mine. And it was, uh, it was this like really warm uh, moment of acceptance for me. And so it, it's wonderful when, when strangers tell me they're they're buying the book or that they've read the book and, and that they enjoyed it. But that doesn't really feel real because those people aren't real people to me. I, I really appreciate them. I hate the way that just sounded when I heard it. <laughs> um, but when people I know and love and respect uh, accept me and my creativity, uh, it, it makes me happier than I ever thought it could be. Something I learned the hard way is if you write one novel, people are going to start asking about a second novel. I know. <laughs> I wrote one. What more do you mean? <laughs> Can I take a break? Yeah. So what about you guys? What's next? What are you working on now? When's the next one coming out? When can we when can we read it? Colin? My story's done, um, but I, I will definitely uh, work on new things. In fact, I have like a first draft of a new novel that I'm I'm very pleased about, and it's totally different from what I've written before. Um, I've been asked a couple of times, do I want to write a sequel to Short Mercy? And... I just don't see uh, where it could go. It feels very con concluded to me. Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've written something that feels a, a little bit more YA, in fact. Um, and uh, I'm excited to pursue that further. It's definitely kept me creating for the last nine months or so. Um, but I don't know, sky's the limit. I want to just thank the the people in the chat and, and the people who joined us today for coming and, and participating on Saturday morning. Um, this has been yeah. great. There's a great turnout. Um, you never know what to expect when you're up with the birds. Um, I'd like to thank uh, our authors. Congratulations, you guys, on writing a novel. Um, your The first one, I think, is the hardest because it takes 10 years to come out. Um, so congratulations <laughs> on just, just doing that. But also congratulations on all the recognition you're getting. It's very well deserved. Um, everyone who's seeing this, go out and buy the books. Um, read the books. Uh, say nice things about the books to your friends. <laughs> um, go on Goodreads and downvote all the bad reviews. Because, <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm a little bitter. Um, and remember, uh, the Atlantic Book Awards Festival is going on all week. There's a whole bunch of other events in person in the Halifax area and also uh, virtual. So you can join in from Pennsylvania or Cape Breton or wherever you are. Um, AtlanticBookAwards.ca is the place to find out about that. On Monday night is the Nova Scotia Book Awards, which you can tune into um, live from the Halifax City Hall. 
Thursday night, like I said, is the big gala. I'm sure there'll be free cheese there. So um, if nothing else, go get some free cheese and, and, and rub elbows with, with our, the best of the best in Atlantic Canada. Um, and uh, like I said at the beginning, this was co-presented by the Cabot Trail Writers Festival, which along with Read by the Sea is one of the best festivals uh, going. So check that out at the end of September, cabottrailwritersfestival.com. So yeah, that's that's our hour. I want to thank you all for coming. And um, that's it. So thank you all and have a great weekend. Here to present the Margaret and John Savage first book award for fiction is Nicola Davison, who won this award in 2019 for her debut novel, In the Wake. Nicola just released her second novel, which I can't wait to read, Decoding Doc Gray, a few weeks ago. So please welcome Nicola. The nominees for the 2022 Margaret and John Savage First Book Award for Fiction are Alexandra Harrington for The Last Time I Saw Her, published by Nimbus. C.S. Porter for Beneath Her Skin, also published by Nimbus. And Colin Sweets Arsenault for Short Mercy, published by Pottersfield Press. As for Short Mercy, the jury called it a delight. They went on to say, with humor, compassion, and insight, Colin Sweet's Arsenault follows the unlikely duo of a teenage troublemaker and a defeated writer, from used bookstores to dingy diners, dilapidated banks to getaway cars. A tangible joy in language makes this debut shine. Arsenault's sentences bounce and bound giddily along taking us on a gleeful ride through small town Atlantic Canada and all its attendant idiosyncrasies. A buoyant, unforgettable trip. Short Mercy is an impressively confident debut from Colin Sweet's Arsenault, an Elmore Leonard-esque tale of crime and an unexpected friendship. The writing style rings out from the page with the comfort of a pro, precise yet freewheeling, Believable, yet larger than life. Short Mercy tells the tale of a used bookstore owner stirred out of his own malaise in the aftermath of a robbery, teaming up with a mischievous teen to find a near-mythical figure. While hijinks ensue, the characters are developed beyond their archetypes, and we get a peek into the way word travels in the gossipy small towns of the East Coast. This is the book for anyone who has ever wondered what it would be like if the Cohen brothers set one of their comedic crime capers in Atlanta, Canada. And the winner of the 2022 Margaret and John Savage First Book Award for Fiction is Colin Sweet's Arsenal Short Mercy, Pottersfield Press. I, uh, I didn't prepare any remarks, which speaks to my expectations. Um, congratulations to my fellow nominees. Uh, I'm tremendously honored to be in the same conversation as brilliant, 
writers, remarkable creators such as them. Uh, I want to I want to thank Pottersfield Press, uh, Leslie Choice, who made my dream come true, um, Peggy Amaro, and Julia Swan, who helped me make the book a lot better. Um, Becky Tucker, who helped me make the book a lot better. Uh, she read it first. She gave me notes. Uh, she also agreed to marry me next Saturday. Uh, um, uh, I'm at a loss for words. Thank you very much. Thank you. Big week, that's exciting. <laughs> like Tara, Gary Williams is multi-talented, a musician, composer, director, and teacher, as well as an actor. We're happy to have him here to read an excerpt for us now. W.J. Mercy almost surely didn't exist. Or perhaps like other wondrous figures of myth, a man who called himself W.J. had once existed but the communal development of his story had been so patchworked over the ages, there was no way to tell what was and wasn't true. Per the buzz, he was a classic outlaw, a sort of northern Jesse James for the modern age, known for two traits above all else, evasiveness and clemency. The reputation was born in 78, when every major bank on Cape Breton Island was robbed within 18 hours by a man in a black mask. The name was derived from a piece of cardstock recovered at one of the crime scenes, which was imprinted with the letters WJ in crisp Smith Corona typeface. To commit a crime of that scale on an island of all places was bold, but the assailant's style is what caught the public's attention. By the robbery of the fifth bank, the RCMP presumed to have detected a ge geographical pattern and lined the Cabot Trail with squad vehicles. By the twelfth bank, they realized there was in fact no pattern and that the bandit appeared to be popping up in an entirely arbitrary sequence. So, all teller banks on Cape Breton were ordered to lock their doors. By the time the doors were locked, all but one bank had been robbed, and W.J. just so happened to be inside that bank already. He tossed a sack on his shoulder and walked casually, like a gorilla Santa Claus, toward the locked door where he kindly asked the security guard to unlatch it for him. The guard glared at the featureless black fabric and weighed the threat of his club against that of the not-yet-raised Beretta on the crook's left hand, and, in a moment, reached to unlock the door and slid it open manually. W.J. walked outside and was gone again. His calm demeanor and the fact he was never met with resistance became the heart of the story. Witnesses spoke of how they never even felt especially frightened He'd scarcely addressed anyone directly. He'd used his manners. His gun never went off. He'd managed to single-handedly commit the grand theft of $180,000 without ever having to provoke fear, force, 
or fatality. It was his positive trait for which the horrific incident became known. His mercy. Thank you, Gary and Nikolai, and congratulations again, Colin. Thank you so much for coming and joining us virtually. Colin, we look forward to all attending your wedding on Saturday, and have a wonderful evening. Good night, everybody. Thank you.